Hey everybody, it is Friday, July 26, 2019, and you're listening to an episode of the Salvage Title Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Isledike, and uh, I'm here to talk to you about car news, car culture, and car whatever. Uh, it's been a little over a month since the last episode of the show. Uh, I recently got a promotion at my real-life job at the brewery, and uh, as such, I've been consumed with a lot of... Uh, days while catching up with things, getting things figured out as the job transition is kind of sort of wrapped up at this point, and I'm now fully in control of uh, a little more merchandising, things like that uh, at the brewery. So uh, hopefully we can make this thing a little more regular. I'm trying to stick to Fridays being uh, personal days for my life at home. So yeah, here we are. We're, we're going to do some catch-up news stories today. We're going to talk about a few cars that I think are interesting that are coming out here uh, in the next couple of months. And uh, I want to talk a bit about uh, some of the used car shopping that I'm doing for my SO. Uh, the Jeep lease is rapidly coming to a close, uh, and we feel like we've got some alternatives to really hone in on and uh, just kind of touch on what I'm experiencing so far. Uh, but before we get into all of that, uh, just a quick note that uh, we do make Salvage Title available for free on pretty much every podcasting platform that's out there. Uh, Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, so much more. If you just type in Salvage Title, uh, you'll be able to find us. I try to publish once a week on Friday at the very least, but... Uh, well, clearly we haven't been sticking to that. Um, but if you like what you hear, make sure you hit that subscribe button. Uh, if you could give us a rating on one of those platforms, I'd greatly appreciate it. And uh, yeah, after the bump, we'll talk about the new Chevrolet Corvette. So first things first, I wanted to talk a bit about the 2020 Chevrolet Corvette. Uh, it has been just about a week since the car made its debut out in Southern California. And, uh, you know, we've all kind of talked ourselves to death about what this car means, what this car represents going forward. And uh, I, I think there's not a ton else I have to add, but I just figured at the very least we'll kind of touch on it and uh, talk about this, I guess, from the perspective of a longtime Corvette aficionado. Uh, if you don't know the basic specs, uh, the new 2020 Corvette is the first Corvette that's going to be a mid-engine rear-wheel drive car. It is on an all-new platform, and it uses, uh, well, there's only one carryover part from the previous Corvette. Uh, so that's a good indication of where things are at. Uh, being mid-engine and rear-wheel drive, it's going to be able to have monumental amounts of aero performance and uh, mechanical grip that the front-engine rear-wheel drive platform just couldn't provide anymore. Uh, there had been a lot of complaints throughout the C7 generation that Corvette had basically maxed out the performance of their chassis, of their suspension design. Uh, there really was nowhere else for the car to go. Uh, and it was really evident in the way that the C7 Z06 and ZR1 just couldn't quite put the power down the way that uh, many other cars could. Uh, so the story goes, Chevrolet's apparently been developing this car since 2009. Uh, that was when it got approval after uh, the financial or collapse and the bankruptcy uh, really took the car under. Uh, but uh, this has been really a long time coming. 
Uh, the new car will use a modified version of the LT1 V8, designated the LT2. Still has 6.2 liters of displacement. Uh, it'll produce about 495 horsepower. I'm forgetting what the torque number is. Uh, and it will be matched to an 8-speed dual-clutch automatic only. Uh, that dual-clutch automatic is not being developed in-house by General Motors. Uh, it's being developed, I believe, by Getrag, if I remember correctly. Uh, Getrag has done uh, automated uh, transmissions in the past. I think they did them for uh, Aston Martin a long time ago, and they weren't particularly good. Uh, so I don't have my hopes set super high um, but, you know, it being a flagship performance car for General Motors, I would imagine that they would be spending a lot of money to not fuck it up. Uh, that being said, that dual-clutch automatic will be your only option for the car. Uh, there will be no manual at any point in any model, according to the folks at GM, uh, for the Corvette. Uh, and at least for now... The car is going to be rear-wheel drive only. Uh, no turbochargers, no superchargers, no nothing being planned, just a naturally aspirated V8. Uh, speaking in terms strictly of Corvette purity, obviously this is, again, a huge departure being a mid-engine rear-wheel drive car. Uh, mid-engine Corvettes have been under development since the like late 60s, mid-70s. Uh, this has been a platform that's been batted around Really, as long as I can remember, I can recall reading articles about a mid-engine Corvette coming at some point in time in the future. Uh, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, 2009, is this ever going to happen? I would have unequivocally said no. Uh, if you would have asked me five years ago, I would have said there is no way we're ever going to get a mid-engine Corvette. And, you know, here we are. Uh, I think as a long-time Corvette purist, I think the thing that bothers me most about this being the new way shape of Corvette is that it really seems to remove itself, I guess, from the everyman identity that the car had had. It was, you know, front engine, rear wheel drive with a big V8 with push rods uh, to kind of give it, uh, give the, uh, you know, the middle finger, I guess, of sorts to the Porsche 911, to the Ferrari, uh, well, F whatever mid-engine rear-wheel drive cars, to to so many other vehicles out in the market. The Corvette had always kind of just been this, this bully of sorts that was able to come in, put down some power, put down some incredible performance numbers, and it was cheap as chips to buy. Uh, you know, you could be some dude working on the GM factory line, uh you know, making 40 some odd thousand dollars a year. And depending on where your finances were at, you could very easily have bought one of these, uh, no problem. And it would outrun pretty much anything else on the road that you would see on a regular basis. And that's what always made the Corvette really cool. Now, the car moving to a mid-engine platform adds in some different changes. You know, it's not a uh, handling style that a lot of people are used to here in the United States. Uh, there's not a lot of mid-engine cars available uh, at these lower sub $100,000 prices. Uh, Chevrolet is saying that the price of the new Corvette will start less than $60,000, which is an incredible steal when you consider what you are getting with this car. Uh, but it is a little bit of a jump compared to the outgoing model. Um, I believe previous Corvettes started in the upper 40s, low 50s, but given the performance gains that you're going to get, uh, I, I think that $10,000 price is pretty justified. 
speaking of performance numbers, uh, General Motors is saying that the C8 Corvette, when equipped with the Z51 performance package, will accelerate from 0 to 60 in less than 3 seconds. Uh, top speed is going to be probably north of 200 miles an hour. Uh, these things are probably going to pull 1G plus on the skid pad. I mean, this is going to be a a very impressive performance car. Uh, General Motors sounds like they are very committed to not only taking the battle with this car to the standard 911 Carrera uh, or the Carrera Turbo in a random way, uh, or not random necessarily, but it's definitely going to be benchmarked there. I think this car is really going to be looking to put the Ferrari 488 in its sights. Uh, it's going to be looking to put the uh, McLaren 720 in its sights. Uh, this car is not going to be fucking around. And again, at $60,000 to be taking on the likes of the NSX, McLaren, so many others, uh, it is an absolute performance car bargain. I do have nitpicks with the car. And, you know, this, again, coming from a very long-time Corvette aficionado, there's just details in the car that just don't feel quite right. And I think a lot of this has been exasperated by the C7 Corvette. Uh, it's a car that, when it first debuted, I liked it a lot, and it really got long in the tooth quick, and it really made me appreciate how much better the C6 was uh, throughout its lifespan. Uh, but the C7, you know, I don't know, it just it just doesn't... It doesn't have the look that I think I wanted a Corvette to have. The C8 kind of grows on what the C7 was. Uh, it's got the more modern front fascia. It's got the Camaro-style taillights, which I really honestly hate. Uh, the styling choice made by having a rear trunk that fits golf bags, again, makes sense to the buyers who are going to be purchasing this car. Uh, but in terms of body proportions, it just makes this really long, weird shape that really doesn't need to be there. Uh, the frunk is somewhat useful, but again, for the kind of clientele that they're going, <coughs> excuse me, that they're going for, you're going to have to have a frunk and a trunk uh, to get those kinds of buyers, because this will be a more useful car, more than likely than a 911 to some extent. Uh, but I don't know, I would rather just have them go, fuck it, uh, cut all the stuff out. We're going to make this a performance, performance car. And if you want a car that's going to carry golf bags and do whatever else, go get a damn Camaro. Uh, but hey, you know, I'm not the guy who runs General Motors. Uh, other styling things I really don't care for is the center console. Um, if you haven't seen photographs of the car, uh, it's got a very strong uh, cockpit feel that really, I think, kind of speaks to the weird way that the Corvette has always got a bit more of a special uh, relationship when it comes to design at General Motors. Um, it's got a very futuristic feel that it, it, it feels very alien, I guess, in the way it comes across compared to other General Motors vehicles. Um, you've got this uh, two-spoke steering wheel in front of you that on its own, I think, looked really bad. Inside the car, it makes a lot of sense, and I'm I, I have definitely forgiven that thing uh, after that press image had come out. But in the placement where you're sitting there and you've got the screen on the dashboard kind of tilted towards you, and then there's this, like, flying buttress almost that goes from the dashboard uh, to the down all the way past your elbow on the center console. And that flying buttress basically just has, like all of the seat heaters, the window controls, the locking mechanisms, all that stuff 
is just on this thing sitting there on the dashboard and I, I I guess just visually seeing photos of it, seeing video of it, it looks absolutely ridiculous. I don't know how you tell the buttons apart. I don't know how you see that it's for the driver, for the passenger. It just doesn't really make a lot of sense. And if you're the passenger sitting on the right-hand side of the car, it's not like you can really operate those buttons easily because, again, they're tilted more towards the driver. Uh, it, it just really seems like a design mess waiting to happen. Uh, I, I'm open to new ideas with this car. I think it's going to be interesting to see in person and touch and feel. Um, but I, I have a feeling that when future revisions of this car come down the line in the next, you know, three to five years, uh, I would, if I'm a betting man, I think that's going to be the first thing to go uh, in terms of interior design. Now, GM is saying that uh, the new Corvette will be available in left-hand or right-hand drive. Uh, this is the first time that GM's ever built the Corvette out that way in the factory uh, because they are going to be exporting this car to markets all over the world, um, both in Europe as well as in Southeast Asia. Uh, I believe Australia is going to be selling the Corvette at Holden dealers. Whether or not it becomes a Holden Corvette or remains a Chevy Corvette, uh, we'll wait and see. But this kind of leads some of the credence to the idea that Corvette should be its own brand within General Motors. Um, it's an idea that's been floated around for many, 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 many years. Uh, and a lot of the times when people had discussed the idea of a mid-engine Corvette, uh, the idea was that Chevrolet would basically spin Corvette off into a sub-brand and then you would have a mid-engine Corvette as the halo car, and you would have a, a front-engine rear-wheel drive Corvette uh, as the base trim entry-level car. And it looks like that's not the case at the moment. Uh, you know, I think with the note uh, a few weeks back about how the Corvette will, or excuse me, the Camaro will likely be dying after 2022, uh, we could see some kind of mini Corvette come back in a more affordable form with the front engine and the rear wheel drive. Um, the C8 is being referred to as the Stingray, which of course was the more premium option back in the day. Um, but, uh, yeah, or I guess it wasn't exactly a premium option. It was a name that kind of differentiated it from the previous Corvettes to give it a more sporting appeal. Again, we'll see what ends up happening. I think GM's going to be trying to look at record sales numbers on this car before they make any other big commitments uh, for this chassis. But uh, we will wait and see. Uh, one of the other big wait-and-see moments here is what exactly happens to this car after the fact. Because if we know that there is a base trim and a convertible and a Z51, uh, there's ultimately probably going to be a Z06, a ZR1. Uh, do they do completely different powertrain models? Do they do electrification? Uh, GM seems to be suggesting, at least at this point, that there will be some kind of electrified Corvette in the not-too-distant future. Uh, the current implication is that uh, the Corvette would be getting a or some kind of hybrid system uh, with a electric motor set up on the front axle, whether it would be an independent motor on each wheel, kind of like the NSX, or just something ju that's just generally hybridized. Uh, kind of remains to be seen. Uh, motor Week was talking about how the chassis that's under this car is beefed up in a way that seems really excessive, and they are under the impression that there's going to be multiple uses for this uh, car going forward, whether or not they all carry the Corvette badge. Uh, 
probably won't be the case. Um, right now, the think line of thinking is that Cadillac will ultimately end up building a car with this platform. Uh, some people think that we could maybe see a Buick with this platform. Um, there's a lot of different options available out there right now. Uh, and it sounds like the engine bay that's in this is also designed to take a wide variety of powertrains as well. Uh, would we see a full electric Corvette? Uh, I have a feeling that that is a near probability at this point. Um, I think we're definitely going to probably see a Corvette with some kind of turbocharged V8. Whether or not that ends up being the Blackwing V8 from the Cadillacs, uh, not 100% sure. Back when Denition was the head of Cadillac, he said unequivocally that no other brand at GM will have that V8 as an option. Um, but now that he's gone and the bean counters, I'm sure, are counting the dollars on the development of that engine, uh, they're going to want to get it in more things. And uh, a twin-turbocharged V8 Corvette seems like the kind of world fighter that uh, GM and the brand would need. Uh, someone on MotorWeek brought up the idea of putting in that new uh, twin-turbo V6 from the Cadillacs. That seems like that would be a good way to do a budget Corvette. Um, whether or not that would happen, I kind of have my doubts. I would love to see a really shrunken down version of this chassis uh, sold through Chevrolet dealers. Maybe not necessarily branded as a Corvette, but with that 2.7 liter turbo from the uh, Silverado and the new Cadillac... Uh, what is it, the CT, CT4V has it. Uh, that little engine, I think, would be a ton of fun in this chassis. Uh, but again, you know, I, I don't think we can really get our hopes up too high at this point, simply because it's a Corvette. They sell 30 to 50,000 of these a year. Um, it's going to go like gangbusters for the first two or three years, and then after that, things will kind of slide off, and they'll have to start doing something special. Now, one of the things I did mention up at the top is that I did want to talk about kind of the Corvette in succession as we got to the C8. Uh, I'm, you know, I grew up in a GM family. I grew up in a Chevrolet household. Uh, the Corvette has always been the car in my life that I've aspired to own, uh, that I have loved more than any other brand of car out there uh, in the market. And, uh, I definitely see that continuing for the most part with the C8, uh, simply because it is designed to be a world fighter. It is designed to uh, take on the best from Germany, Japan, uh, Korea, really any marketplace. Uh, it's going to be tough to find a car that competes squarely with the Corvette and is able to supersede it, not only in terms of performance, but also in terms of price. But the Corvette wasn't always a world beater. Uh, the C1, of course, was basically a cobbled together hot rod uh, with fiberglass bits and uh, truck engines under the hood. Uh, it had a two-speed uh, slush box automatic. Uh, and the early Corvettes were very slow. They were fun to kind of take out on the weekend. They were more of a style than a substance car. And the C2 Corvette that eventually succeeded it really amped things up with the Stingray designation. Uh, I still believe to some extent that the C2 is without a doubt the best looking Corvettes, uh, especially the early split window coupes, um, but even the convertibles later on. Uh, the C2 really brought in a lot of the high performance designations for the Corvette as well, going all the way up to the 427 and 454 power plants. Uh, these cars were meant to run. They went to Le Mans, they went to Sebring, they went to Daytona, and they performed. Uh, but it really didn't happen until the C3 that I think the Corvette kind of became 
what it is today uh, with that really elongated front end with the big V8. Uh, and that C3 architecture went from, what, 1968 to 1981, right? Yeah, I think it was, or sorry, 1980. Uh, so, I mean, it was a pretty long-standing car. Or sorry, it was 82 was the last year of that chassis. Uh, that's pretty unprecedented for a lot of cars to last that long. And of course, we went from 400 plus horsepower, high performance Stingrays in the late 60s to cars with five liter V8s that were barely pushing out 130 horsepower. Um, you know, emissions, all that kind of stuff all played a part of it. Um, but it was the C4 that kind of serves as the basis of where we are today. Uh, the C4, of course, was the Corvette that was on sale at the time when I was a little kid. Uh, and I still hold the C4 arguably in the highest level of regard simply because it's like, you know, your first doctor with Doctor Who or it's your first, uh, well, James Bond. You know, it, it's that kind of thing. Who is the person or the car or the whatever that defines the thing that you know? And for me, it's the C4 Corvette. Uh, specifically, it's the 91 ZR1, uh, but the later uh, 96 LT4 Corvettes, I think, are really where it's at. And uh, that really kind of shaped my greatest disappointment, <coughs> excuse me, with the C8 is that uh, we don't have the C8 in green. Uh, there's no emerald green color. You can't get the emerald green with the tan interior, which I still think is the greatest color combination on any Corvette. Uh, I'm sure that that color will get added later on down the line because I'm sure a billion people are going to complain. Um, but, uh, there's that just little bit of detail that's missing that comes from my favorite generation of Corvette that just isn't present in this new one, and, uh, it's really unfortunate. One other thing that kind of grew out of the C4 Corvette and showed up in later models was that the rear taillights didn't always have to be round. Uh, in 91, the Corvette taillights switched to kind of rounded off squares, uh, to put it in line with the ZR1 styling. And uh, that, I think, is still one of the smartest design changes that GM ever made on the car. Uh, the C4 was just such, I don't know, to me it's a perfect design of its time. It evolved in the right ways uh, as the car went on. And uh, to me, it's still the strongest of the Corvettes in terms of visuals, in terms of sizing, everything. It's, it's just about perfect. The C5, on the other hand, is pretty much a cartoon, I think, at this point for a lot of people. Um, a lot of things with the C5 were, well, evolutions of what we had previously had in the C4. Um, still plenty of fiberglass, lots of really not-so-great plastic. Um, but where GM really saved in terms of, uh, well, cheap interior bits, cheap mechanical bits... Uh, they really kind of spread their wings a bit when it came to chassis tuning, chassis refinement, and engine development, because of course it was in the C5 generation that we did get the first of the modern Z06s uh, with the 6-liter LS6 V8. Uh, that particular engine was a firecracker. Um, you know, it was a LS1 with a modified head and intake manifold. Um, it really just knew how to put the power down, uh, had this guttural, throaty roar that, you know, none of its competitors really could hold a candle to. And, you know, 
with the C5-Z06 being right around $50,000 at that point in time, it was a huge performance bargain compared to anything from Ferrari, Porsche, BMW, uh, you name it. And it really put Chevrolet on the map because also with the C5, uh, Corvette took their car to Le Mans. Uh, they won their class many, many years in a row. They put Ferrari, or excuse me, not Ferrari down, but they put uh, Viper down. Uh, they they really kind of showed the world that they meant business when it came to performance. And uh, that really kind of continued into what I feel is the ultimate Corvette, uh, at least in my mind, and that is, of course, the C6. Now, the C6 kind of took, again, a lot of what they had learned from the C4 and C5 and really kept cranking on what it needed to be in the marketplace to be an incredibly successful car. Uh, the C6, of course, brought in the new, larger LS series motors, uh, the first of which was a 6-liter V8 and then later a 6.2-liter V8. Uh, they were putting down higher and higher and higher performance numbers, uh, of course, culminating in the C6 Z06 with the 7-liter LS7 V8, uh, basically a modern version of the 427. Uh, this engine was a screamer. It revved up to like 7,000 RPMs, uh, put down 500 horsepower, 500 pound-feet of torque. Uh, it was just a nice round V8. Uh, I think a lot of people still put it, if not at the top, it's one of the top three naturally aspirated V8s of all time. Uh, it's an engine that just kept finding ways to survive after the fact. They put it in the uh, Camaro Z28, uh, in the Zeta chassis car. I mean, this Corvette really, I think, just has the looks down pat. Uh, it has the feel down. It really kind of pushed the chassis right to its limits, but didn't exceed what was available at the time. And it's a chassis that with modern bits of rubber, with modern bits of engineering added to it, really is capable of being a world-class performance car 10 plus years later, which is absolutely phenomenal. And the other big thing I think with the C6 is that, you know, Chevrolet, General Motors, they started going, you know, maybe we do need to give a shit about the interior. Uh, they started offering uh, premium interior options that put it, hmm, it's hard to say at par with European car companies because uh, it really wasn't anywhere close. It was getting there is, I guess, a good way to put it. Uh, you could, I think it was like a $4,000 option to get suede covering everything. Uh, but of course, the big regret with the C6 Corvette, and it's the thing I will openly admit, even though it is my favorite Corvette, uh, there were too many parts bin pieces in that car. Uh, the car shared its steering wheel with the Chevy Cobalt. Uh, the head unit was in everything from the Saab 9.3 to the GMC Sierra. Uh, it, it was in everything. And, you know, again... GM saved money where they could to put it into the engineering of the vehicle, and it showed in the final product. So the C7, like I said, is kind of the car that I think really has grown to disappoint me as time has gone on. The early renditions of the C7 were really impressive. It brought in a lot of the performance car development. Uh, it had heat extractors in the hood, which were a key part of the car being successful uh, at Le Mans. It was co-developed alongside the Le Mans cars. Uh, it had, you know, the performance traction management system. It had all of these gizmos and doodads trying to make you as fast as humanly possible in this car. Uh, and, you know, it did work. I mean, 
I shouldn't ever say that the performance of the C7 wasn't good. I think it just kind of goes to show where the limits were with this chassis and why the C8 is going mid-engine rear-wheel drive. Uh, we have a car that, you know, for all intents and purposes, was still a poor man's performance car. Uh, it was world-class in terms of outright performance in certain situations, but when you started getting past the Z51 model into the Z06, into the ZR1, uh, the chassis couldn't take the amount of power that was being put down by it. Uh, you couldn't get the right size rubber on the car. Uh, the supercharger was causing heat soak engines or heat soak problems with the engines. Uh, the only way to get a truly fast one with the supercharged V8s was if you got the automatic. It really just ended up becoming a really compromised performance machine. So if you had some personal limits to yourself, you stuck with the Z51, you got a really competent performance Corvette, again, for not a whole lot of money, but upper-end Corvettes were starting to push $100,000, and you start bumping into cars like the 911 Turbo. I mean, not quite at that price, but some of the new Turbo 911s ring around those areas. You got the Honda NSX being just slightly above that. And then you kind of get the problem where, you know, you, you have cars like the Lexus LC500, right around the same price as some of those performance Corvettes, or at least Corvettes equipped with the right luxury options. And you start having the problem, well, where, you know, the Lexus will pretty much last you forever. You could drive it just as hard. Certainly wasn't as fast, but, uh, you know, it looked a hell of a lot better. And, you know, I think GM just started seeing where the problems were. And, you know, it makes sense to me why the C8 had to move on. It really is frustrating as a Corvette fan to see the front engine rear wheel drive uh, thing that you've been holding on to for so long go away. Um, but I'm really excited to see where the future takes us um, because, you know, we don't know if there's going to be a C9 Corvette. We don't know if there's going to be a C anything in the near future. And, you know, if this is the last hurrah for the uh, gasoline-engined uh, American performance car, I think this is a pretty good way to go out. So last up in the news segment, I wanted to touch on two new Volkswagen Group products that both kind of take a similar approach to design and have really seemed to, well, one hasn't really polarized anybody because it seems like nobody cares, and the other one seems like a lot of people unanimously hate it. Uh, the first one with which nobody seems to care, except for Volkswagen, is the new Atlas Cross Sport. Uh, it, this is basically a car that we saw announced in China back in January uh, with the China show. It was called the Terramount X. Uh, more or less, this is an Atlas with its ass end uh, chopped short and the roof line dropped a bit. Uh, it is definitely a much more stylish Atlas. Uh, and, you know, to some extent, I feel like it's maybe the smarter Atlas choice to make for more people. Um, it reminds me a lot, at least in terms of shape, of the old Range Rover Sport, if that makes some level of sense. Uh, that old Range Rover Sport had that kind of rakish rear profile and it just kind of stopped at the end and it looked really good. And on this Atlas, I think it kind of does the same kind of thing. That being said, I'm not a huge fan of the Atlas to begin with. 
it's a crossover that you know was kind of right time right place for Volkswagen it's really helped them increase a lot of their sales and profitability here in the US uh, but it really doesn't move the needle in any way uh, compared to some of the competitors especially when you start considering that vehicles like the Kia Telluride and the Hyundai Palisade have come in and really been a bit of an embarrassment not only to Volkswagen but also to Subaru who recently released the Ascent uh, that you know they're gonna have to start making some moves and I think to some extent Volkswagen is smart to kind of make this kind of model change uh, to drive up interest in the car to keep the lines busy down in Tennessee uh, this really just seems like a smart way to go uh, this will be of course built in Chattanooga uh, it uses pretty much the same engines transmissions everything as the outgoing or not even the outgoing uh, Atlas this is just basically an evolution of what we already know so uh, I would probably expect starting prices to be somewhere in the $40,000 range just because it is a slightly more luxurious model, at least in terms of overall design. Uh, smart money would say just get the regular one, but I think as somebody who's, well, specifically in the target market for this vehicle, I think the coupe looks a lot better. So get that more rakish one, get that CC styling in your big ass SUV. Uh, that seems to be the way to go these days. Uh, over on the flip side, over at Audi, uh, you know, they've been kind of knocking out of the park with some of their crossovers and SUVs as of late. Uh, the big Q7 got a really nice refresh. They got the Q8 coming. Or am I getting this confused with the BMWs now? I don't know. There's too many Qs and whatever else. Uh, of course, the e-tron debuted and is kind of steering the uh, styling choices of a lot of the brand uh, in a very different way. And one of those new cars that are benefiting from that uh, e-tron styling is, of course, the Q3 Sportback. Uh, much like that Atlas with its SN chopped off, uh, the Q3 Sportback kind of does the same thing. It gets that lowered roof line. It loses a little bit of uh, length at the end of the vehicle gives it a much sporty, sportier character uh, that I think, I guess to me, does wonders for the vehicle. Uh, a lot of the automotive press that I follow on Twitter spoke at length, or as least as long as tweets can be, saying that it was downright heinous that this vehicle exists. Uh, I would tend to disagree based on the photos just because I think it looks really good. Um, but again, you know, I'm in that target market for this vehicle. I think design-wise, this looks superior to the standard car. And again, if you're a young person who's probably buying this, you're probably gonna be getting, you know, you're, you would have gotten a Golf 10 years ago. This is now the Golf for a lot of people. Uh, I don't know, fuck it, it makes sense. Get the one that looks a little bit nicer. It's not like you're gonna lose use that space in the background because you're just driving to Starbucks and Target and going to work in it, so eh. The weird thing, of course, with this car is that uh, they are offering this new powertrain, which has kind of had more questions than answers for a lot of folks. Uh, Audi is developing this mild hybrid system uh, for the Q3 Sportback that's mated to a 1.4 liter uh, turbocharged engine. Uh, this in supposed to save a lot of gasoline but when you start to actually do the math of how much gasoline you're saving you're looking at maybe a couple gallons a month uh in a roundabout way some of the accusations i've seen on the internet is that this is meant to be compliant solely with european electrification standards uh, a lot of countries a lot of cities in europe are slowly uh, rolling back the availability of gasoline and diesel only vehicles in the continent or excuse me on the continent and are mandating greater and greater amounts of electrification 
out until full electric vehicles uh, over the next 10 to 15 years. And uh, some of those time frames are coming up pretty quick. Uh, so a lot of people think that this is one of the first cars that's going to kind of skirt those regulations a bit uh, while Audi saves time and saves space for more of the e-tron uh, models to start rolling out because of course there will be a Q3 e-tron although I think it's the Q4 e-tron is what they're calling it uh, there's going to be more I guess to say an electrification for Audi going forward so as a stopgap car you know whatever uh, if it's not a huge penalty in price to buy this one compared to the standard 2 liter turbo model uh, I don't know, just make it the standard engine. Who gives a shit? But uh, I think really the way to go for me, if I'm getting one, is the full fat sport back with the 2-liter turbo. Uh, and, you know, equipping it with some S-line designations, man, that's going to be a pretty kicking little car uh, in a roundabout way. But, of course, you know, you could probably get a Golf for a lot cheaper. But, spoiler alert, guys, it sounds like they're going to stop selling the Golf here in the U.S. in the next year or two. So it might end up being this Audi is the only option we have for a fun GTI-like vehicle uh, in the not-too-distant future. So last up, uh, talking, well, a bit about our car shopping situation with me and my SO. Uh, we've got a 2015 Jeep Renegade that was leased from new back around uh, Labor Day of 2015. And uh, we've enjoyed this Jeep, to say the least. I, I think as much as we uh, complain about certain things... Uh, overall, you know, it's been a fantastic car for long-distance drives. Uh, it's been a great car when there has been uh, significant inclement weather. Uh, really, it's it's been pretty reliable, all things considered. Uh, and that's been some pretty good stuff, you know. For being an Italian-built Jeep, uh, it's definitely gotten the job done. Uh, but the time has passed, and uh, we've realized that there were some mistakes made, there were some assumptions made, and uh, we're looking to move on. So right now the question is, you know, do we do we turn this lease in? Uh, it's definitely a good bit under mileage compared to what uh, the lease agreement had been put at. Uh, we have kept it in pretty darn good condition all things considered. So there's a good chance that there is some money to be pulled out of this transaction. And if that is the case, do we roll it over into a new Jeep model? Because of course, this is the time of year when Jeep runs pretty hefty uh, bonuses, whatever you want to call them, uh, perks on getting some of their new vehicles. And uh, you know, we, we're already pretty well aware that they're going to try to force us into a Compass or a Cherokee uh, at that dealer. Uh, they carry almost no Renegades anymore, which is very strange uh, compared to some of the other cars out there. Uh, I still arguably like the Renegade the most out of a lot of the small Jeeps that are out there uh, in terms of availability these days, but uh, you know, the Compass I think would be the next option, and we're just not sold on the Compass as a model yet. Um, as much as I like the fact that the Compass rides a little bit lower, has a little bit more of an aerodynamic profile, uh, has a little bit more of a car-like nature to it compared to the Renegade, uh, there's really not much to be gained by switching to a new Compass. Uh, residual values, for lack of a better term, suck ass on that particular model, and it's why they put huge bonuses on getting one. 
And uh, unless they're really going to fork over a lot of cash for us to make that kind of decision, uh, the Compass just doesn't really seem like the right model to get. Now, that being said, the Cherokee, on the other hand, has had a lot of very significant updates for the 2019 model year. And sometimes, depending on what's available, uh, depending on what kind of different bonuses are going around, uh, the Cherokee does have a more appealing nature to it compared to a compass. But when you start looking at how much worse the fuel economy would be compared to the Renegade, uh, it doesn't really seem like a strong option for someone to go and do right now. Uh, I, I guess I just don't really know what to say about that particular model. I do like a lot of the standard equipment that comes with it. Uh, I do like a lot of the features that seem to be on a lot of the local Jeeps that are on a lot of dealer lots. So it seems like almost every single one of them has the cold weather package put on it, which is, you know, heated seats, uh, heated window wipers, all this kind of good stuff that you would need in Michigan uh, come November, December, January. Uh, but they still lack a lot of the, I guess, safety features, things like that. Things that you would want is standard, I guess, as a car buyer these days. Or I guess maybe a better way to say this is things that I would want for my SO to have standard on her vehicle uh, just really isn't there. And, you know, again, the fuel economy losses are only a couple of miles per gallon in each situation, I think, compared to the Renegade. Uh, but it just doesn't really seem justified unless they're going to, you know, knock... 10 grand, 11 grand, 14 grand off the price of one of these vehicles. And in some instances, the crazy thing is, <coughs> excuse me, there are some Jeep dealers that are doing that with these models, and it is just absolutely insane how bad they want to push these things out the door with all these incentives. And, you know, I, I think right now the conclusion is, at least in terms of getting a brand new Jeep, is that unless the deal is outstandingly crazy good we're getting employee pricing we're getting something like that uh it seems increasingly unlikely that we're going to make that choice uh but i guess it's really a never say never option because it really depends i think on what jeep dealer we end up going to now on the flip side i have been pushing much harder the past couple of weeks uh for a used vehicle um specifically a used hybrid vehicle uh, my SO spends a lot of time sitting in traffic uh, in downtown Grand Rapids and with all of the construction that we've had over the past six to eight months. Um, the city, you know, one project might wrap up, the other one might not, and you're still going to sit in the same 15 to 20 minutes of standstill traffic no matter which way you're going. And a hybrid just makes a lot more sense for my girlfriend just because, you know, why waste the gasoline when you're sitting there at a stoplight? Uh, so used Priuses have been on my mind. Used Priuses have been in my target. And we've found some decent options floating around West Michigan. And boy, oh boy, is the range at which these things are priced, the kind of mileage they have, the kind of condition they're in, uh, really fly all over the board. Um, we, I found one for sale the other day. It was red. It's down in Saugatuck. It has 300,000 miles on it. It's in absolutely pristine condition, which leads me to believe that it was probably towed behind a vehicle, uh, maybe an RV or something like that for a long time. Uh, but what 
a crazy amount of miles to have. And it's really an indication of how reliable these things are because a large number of the Priuses that are for sale on used car lots and in people's uh, personal sale things are all dancing around 175 to 200,000 miles. Uh, these cars last forever when you treat them well, when you do the service, when it needs to get done. Uh, and I think that's really kind of what we need at this point is a car that's, you know, going to be something we don't really need to think about other than tires, other than brakes, other than some really basic fluid changes. Uh, this really seems to make a lot of sense. Now, specific ones that we're looking at, at least today, Friday the 26th of July, uh, well, it seems to kind of honed in on 2011 to 2013 model Priuses. Uh, from what I understand, the 2010 models have a big problem with their headlights and with piston rings, <coughs> excuse me, and they just seem to have more quibbles than it's worth uh, in that particular range. Now, I did find one 2010 model uh, with about 130,000 miles on it for nine grand. That doesn't seem particularly bad. It seems like it's in pretty good shape, but I'm not 100% sold on whether or not that is the best option despite the price savings. Uh, there are a lot of 2013 models are kind of floating around. It sounds like the 2013 model is really kind of the key one to get when it comes to used Priuses in the third generation, simply because the headlights had been fixed at that point, the piston ring problem had been fixed at that point, um, and really, you're just kind of driving a car that survived for another three years on Toyota lots before the brand new current model came out. Now, those models all get around 48, 50-ish miles per gallon on average. Uh, other than basic fluids, you're really not going to have to put too much into the car to drive day-to-day, week-to-week, uh, which really, I think, is the bonus when you consider, by comparison, the Jeep Renegade that we currently have gets... 24 miles per gallon, it's got four-wheel drive, it's got a lot more issues with tire wear, so much else, and that's just not in the interest of things that we want to deal with anymore. Uh, but at the flip side, you know, the Prius, we got to keep an eye on the batteries, we got to keep an eye on a lot of other lit, little nitpicks, doodads, other things that I'm not 100% convinced is worth it either. Um, so, I don't know where we sit. Uh, the other complicated thing with the Prius is, of course, that they offered the Prius C and the Prius V. Now, the Prius Vs here in Michigan, for whatever reason, are worth an extra three to five grand over a comparable Prius. Uh, really, in almost any condition, uh, it's pretty wild how much these things have held their value. Um, and I think a large part of that is the really significant you know, difference in cargo capacity that it has over the standard Prius. You know, the standard Prius holds its own, uh, but the Prius V really stacks it up in a way that I find particularly impressive. Uh, the Prius C, on the other hand, I think kind of deflates the regular Prius's balloon a bit simply because it does get so much better mileage in the city. I think it's an extra like two to three miles per gallon better in the city compared to the regular Prius. Um, but you do lose a lot of capacity behind the rear seats. Uh, the rear seats are just a little bit closer to the front seats. Overall, you know, it is a smaller car. Um, but with the really different layout in the gauges, uh, in the dashboard, it feels less like a cheap kind of toy car. Uh, and it feels more like a regular car, which I think was what Toyota was going for at the time. And I think might be more appealing to my girlfriend. But... We're going to have to drive both to kind of wait and see. Uh, right now, the leader right now, strangely enough, in terms of price, 
uh, at least in terms, I guess when I say price, I mean uh, price per month. Uh, we found a 2013 uh, Prius 2 at CarMax for somewhere around 13 grand. Uh, it's not exactly a screaming deal when it comes to pricing, uh, but it seems to work out the best by almost $50 compared to some of the other ones we're looking at. Um, even though the car is about $1,500 overpriced compared to other cars in the market. Uh, that same car also has another, you know, 40,000 miles more on its clock than some of the other ones at other dealerships. And I think it really kind of comes down to, at least with CarMax, do you want to deal with negotiating on car price? Do you want to deal with this high-pressure environment? Do you want to deal with all these other things? And, you know, I don't, I don't really have a good answer there. I'm going to have to do some pretty significant research to find out uh, if we can price down some of these other cars. Because, just as an example, at the Toyota dealership down the street from CarMax, they've got a same-year 2013 Prius 2 with only 40,000 miles on the clock, they want almost 15 for that particular car. And at that price, you know, I don't really think the 40,000 mile difference is really worth it. Um, but if you can negotiate that down by, you know, $1,500, $2,000, which I think is certainly within the realm of possibility, uh, that seems to be a much better deal. And I don't know, it's a lot of extra work. It's a lot of extra things to consider. It's a lot of extra stuff to go on. And I think really the main thing right now is that until we find out how much money we're going to get back out of this lease, with the mileage being so low, with the condition of the vehicle being so good, um, we don't really know what's going to happen. So it's kind of wait and see. I'll keep you guys updated as we continue to shop, but uh, it's definitely going to be the push and pull back and forth from the Jeep, brand new Jeep aspect to a used Toyota aspect. And uh it should be interesting to see what the final results end up being. Well, guys, that just about wraps up this episode of the Salvage Title Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Eisledyke, and you can follow me on Twitter at YSSMAN, and you can follow along with episodes of this podcast at anchor.fm slash salvage title. Uh, we do the show, well, like I said up at the top, we try to do it once a week, uh, but we've taken about a month off due to some personal scheduling conflicts. So uh, in the meantime, I'm not going to make any promises, but we're going to try to come back next week. Uh, we are coming up, well, not quite on the final weeks of summer, uh, but we're getting into that weird car show territory as we head into September. Um, I know we've got a Radwood coming up in uh, Detroit in the not-too-distant future, and I'm itching to take my grandfather's 1988 Prelude out there. Uh, it's a Prelude that's in absolute mint condition. Uh, it should, you know, place well in the car show, so we'll see what we can do. We've got, uh, let's see, we've got, uh, what's, what's the big one coming up in August? We've got the Woodward Street Dream Cruise. Uh, we've got Monterey coming up. It's going to be an exciting time for old car fans, so, uh, Hopefully we'll have some cool stories to go along with that in the not-too-distant future. Uh, but as far as other general car news, car things go, you know, not a whole lot going on. We're about to uh, hit the brake in Formula One for the midseason. Uh, NASCAR is still rolling. It's, uh, it's that time of summer where there's just not a whole lot going on, and you're just supposed to enjoy yourself 
while the weather is still nice. But hey, if you are in a part of the country where it has been extremely hot, or you're across the pond in Europe where it is apparently dangerously hot compared to what they are normally used to, uh, be safe out there. Make sure you're drinking lots of water. Uh, take some time in the shade. Uh, don't overexert yourself because it is not worth it. And to use one of my new favorite phrases that I've learned recently, be safe, have fun, get it done. Uh, that's the best thing we can do in 2019. So until next time, guys, have a great weekend, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Salvage Title Podcast.